Welcome to Something Positive for Positive People. I'm Courtney Brame. Something Positive for Positive People is still going through that name change process um, and figuring out what it is that we're doing. Um, right now, this interview is going to kind of be um, an idea of what direction Something Positive is going to be going into moving forward as I am speaking with people who work in health, uh, period to get more of an understanding of STI stigma in general. Um, part of what the journey has been for something positive for positive people since 2017 is understanding the potential impact of integrating the lived experiences of people who have gone through the process of being diagnosed with an SCI and having navigated stigma, being able to integrate that into STD prevention efforts as a way of further preventing or minimizing new potential infections. So that's the purpose of these clusters of conversations that I'm having with uh, healthcare providers as opposed to interviewing people with herpes like I have in the past. Um, so yeah, I just, that's the reason we're here. That is what you're going to be able to expect from this episode. Um, so our guest today is Shana and Shana, I'll have you go ahead and introduce yourself. Sure. Uh, my name is Shana French and I'm a certified nurse midwife by training. And for those that might not have ever heard of that title, it is a form of nurse practitioner. Uh, really, as a nurse practitioner, when we specialize, we get some special kind of designation behind our name. And certified nurse midwife just means that we specialize in caring for gynecological and pregnant patients of any gender. Uh, I also have additional training after that because I'm just a huge sex nerd and I love talking about all things sex. So. I've specialized in sex medicine and uh, additional training to be a sex counselor. Uh, so I am an accredited sexual health care provider, a sex counselor, and a kink-affirming provider as well. So I work with uh, patients of all backgrounds. Uh, so I'm excited to talk with you guys today. Amazing. Thank you so much, because I know when I approached you, I had no idea what I was going to be doing with this. I just knew that there was something there. Uh, for everyone that I met at the ISWISH conference, like I'm a dude and I don't have like any sort of medical degrees or backgrounds, but I'm at this uh, women's health conference. And the reason that I was there is because um, partially my board member, Dr. Evelyn Dacker, she was talking about going and it was in St. Louis and I felt like she was like hinting unconsciously that this would be a good idea for me to go here i talked to her she was like no i wasn't doing that at all i was just excited about the conference but uh for me it was like well i do speak with mostly women i would say uh my engagements are with 90 95 percent of the people who have herpes tend to be women so getting an understanding of you know something that was a sexual health based uh, conference I wanted to see what I would be able to learn there and being at that conference I remember uh, hearing something that I say on the podcast all the time is that sexual health is mental health and so it was very affirming to see that there were things uh, in relation to overall health that really tied into sexuality and overall uh, well-being of the patients, the women uh, that all of these studies and research um, 
has been done for. So it made sense for me to try and just connect and see what type of information I would be able to gather that could be useful to the Something Positive for Positive People audience. I love that conference because we know that in sexual health, a team approach with multiple healthcare providers working in collaboration for the patient is really what helps the most. And when I say a team approach, we are talking multidisciplinary. So a healthcare provider like a urologist, a nurse practitioner, or OBGYN working in collaboration with physical therapists for their patient, working in concert with mental health therapists, licensed clinical social workers, and also with the patient. So we really truly believe that you guys are an asset and we need to create a partnership with our patients in order to have the best outcomes. So you're a critical part of the team when it comes to treatment. Uh, so hopefully you took that away from the conference as well, that that's what we're trying to build. Yeah, and that's what I gathered from one of the uh, interviews that I did. Um, I forget who exactly, I got my notes here, but I don't wanna fish through those. Uh, one of the recent guests that I had on spoke about how this is a team approach. And one of the examples that she used was uh, the way that you would get treated, like stigma is a perfect example. So a lot of the people are diagnosed with herpes that I connect with. Um, and we were talking about that and how stigma may come from the healthcare provider. And she gave an example that was just completely so far out of my range of perspective of an emergency uh, emergency room nurse who sees gunshot victims on a daily basis. Some live, some die, some are criminals, but these are all people that have to get treatment, right? So when that person who's seen these gunshot victims on a regular basis sees someone who comes in is like, oh my God, I have herpes, this is the worst thing that's ever happened to me. When she says it's not that bad, it's not coming from a place of belittling this person's real experience. It's literally that in this particular nurse's experience, people are dying. People have been shot. People are probably gonna have to get uh, amputations. There's all types of things that this person is seeing. And then you come in with herpes and it's like, oh, well, this, this isn't that bad at all. So from a very subjective viewpoint from the patient to the provider, oh my God, you're belittling my experience, you're stigmatizing me, da da da. But from the provider's perspective, that isn't stigmatizing at all. It's just matter of fact, like I see gunshot victims, you're not a gunshot victim. I'm actually happy that I don't have to treat a gunshot victim. It's only a matter of me prescribing some medication and giving some education. I think that as providers, there are a lot of factors that go into how we convey information and our background and our personal bias, unfortunately, is one of them. Whether that bias is or stigma is conscious at that level or whether it's something unconscious that we might not be totally aware of and we need to do some work to address. Um, I absolutely think there's a lot of pressures within the system that make it difficult for us to put our full persons into taking care of each and every patient and that can be the biggest one like time so we want to address that situation more fully but the healthcare system doesn't always give us the time to do so 
Um, so we can talk about that a little bit more later as well. Yeah. So is it really a time thing as far as addressing bias? Uh, and I'm curious to know what does addressing bias really look like for the healthcare providers, especially with so much that's expected of you. You're not only expected to get all of the information, like you have to be a great interviewer, you have to be personable, you have to be likable enough for the patient to give you all of the information that you need. You also have to be trauma informed. You have to be aware of and affirming to a person's identity. And you also have to remember all the stuff that you have to uh, recall from medical school and you also have to get it right there's a lot of pressure there so what is the priority yeah and that's difficult to figure that out um, it is a lot for us to try to convey to a person in what we'll say is an average of a 15 minute time slot that is what in most practices that we're working in as nurse practitioners, as doctors, we are given 15 minutes to speak with the patient. And 15 minutes to say you have a new diagnosis of HSV2 or to convey really any major diagnosis is simply not enough. And so what you'll see us defaulting to is let's give the most important facts. Here's what you have. Here's how we're going to treat it. Let's get you feeling better now. And then maybe a glimmer of long-term, what does this look like? And it's really difficult to do all that in an, also in an empathetic way and leave space for the patient to have their reaction for us to be supportive. And it's not that we don't want to do those things. It's just the pressures of the system make it challenging. And you might see that's why some of us are stepping outside of the traditional healthcare model to provide care that's not taking insurance. And that's really sad that we feel like we have to do that in order to provide the best care. But as providers, that's what we are resorting to. Um, and that's not always ideal for the finances of all of us um, as far as patient care. Yeah. So that's part of it. Um, certainly, I think time is one aspect. I think bias is, is separate. You know, bias is a personal work that we need to do to evaluate what biases we have based on our own privilege, based on our own lived experience, and then also recognizing that the healthcare system is inherently biased as well. Um, and so putting in that work outside of the office and patient care to uh, try to lessen that as much as possible. All right. Um... You mentioned bias, or I'm sorry, you mentioned um, providers stepping away from the healthcare system as it is and like sort of starting their own practices or going their own routes for treatment. And I'm curious, how much of that is potentially influenced by bias? Because it would be much easier for me, let's say I'm a queer healthcare provider and I'm tired of dealing with heterosexual problems and relationships. So I opt into only serving or prioritizing serving queer people. Uh, is that a thing or am I just like reaching for something there? Yeah, uh, we don't see that happening as much. Um, more so, it's a way in which we feel that we can provide the best care for our patients. Okay. Because if we step outside of the insurance system, 
we don't have somebody saying to us, you need to see a patient in 15 minutes in order to be considered productive. Um, and so we get to dictate how much time we spend with the patient and based on how much time we spend with them, how much are we going to charge them in a, a cash pay system, essentially. Uh, so the up of that is that we get to take our time with our patient. We don't have an administration, office manager, insurance telling us you only have this 15 minutes and you have to see 30 patients today. Um, but the downside is that then patients are paying cash out of pocket. And sometimes that means that marginalized communities, which might also have low resources, do not have access to that cash pay care. Could be a very big difference. Um, you know, hundreds of dollars an hour versus utilizing insurance and maybe paying a copay or not. I've never thought about it that way. Thank you for sharing that in such detail. Um, the specialized care is essentially, I don't want to say specialized care is like opting out of insurance because that's not actually what it is. It's just in order for us to, it's like we have to pay more for more. It's not even like a more thing. I'm struggling to communicate what I heard here, but I'm going to try and talk through what I'm receiving and what I'm receiving from what you just said is essentially in order for us to remove a lot of the obstacles and barriers that contribute to what may cause a person to feel like they're being um, not as well treated it's also just gonna be more expensive like it's just gonna cost more because the the overhead that you have to pay in order to serve people better has to come from somewhere otherwise like you're paying to <laughs> to work instead of making money off of your work essentially is that in the ballpark yes yeah that's a very good way of kind of looking at it or having it described um what we want to do is our goal is to provide the best patient experience possible and be able to provide that in an environment which also allows us to be fulfilled as a practitioner. Um, and sometimes when we get in these offices where it's just like churning through patients every 15 minutes, we don't feel like we're giving the best of ourselves, the best care that we can to our patients. And so we come home at the end of the day not feeling like we've done our job to the fullest extent. And so coming outside of that insurance system is one way in which we could potentially address it. Now, sometimes we need to put our heads down and we need to do the work to go to administrations and say to them, we need more time with our patients. We need to be able to provide a better patient care experience. Um, and so this is how we view the system needs to change. So as practitioners working within a system, uh, we also need to advocate for ourselves and advocate for our, our clients. It's just sometimes that we're the little fishy and then there's the big, big uh, ocean, right, that we're trying to push against. So, but it's not impossible. Okay. Uh, so going to the administrations um, and just saying, hey, here's what we need, that's 
essentially like what we need in order for us to I guess what would we be able to do let's say our time was doubled and we got to see half the number of patients what would that look like if you have 30 minutes with each patient and you only have to see 15 patients a day how does that look if under insurance still so that looks like a, a better patient care situation where we're able to not only convey the basics of what the patient needs, but we're also able to make this a partnership collaboration with the patient where we can hear what our medical diagnosis and treatment plan, how is that making you feel? What questions do you have about the future? Let's talk more about not only the biological part of it, but also the social and psychological implications of this. So we're able to address it more from a whole person perspective instead of just the medicine. Hmm. So this is where that communication will come in. So one of the things that I'm finding uh, specifically with herpes stigma is that a lot of people when diagnosed, yeah, you can give me the treatment and tell me the statistics and everything. However, if I'm having an emotional response and I need to understand how to tell a partner about my diagnosis or how to disclose my status to future partners, there's just not time for that. So if we are to be able to get more time, then the communication elements can be brought into it and we can go, okay, well, you know, what are some of your challenges? Just like you said, what questions do you have? Because a lot of times they may not know what questions they have, but you'd be able to offer, you know, some questions that are common and speak to some of those things, which can open up dialogue between you and your patient. Exactly right. And if somebody as a practitioner is uh, experienced in uh, giving diagnosis of HSC2, this is something they work with on a regular basis, or just any um, humanical disease, really what we're used to is we know this is overwhelming. So let's be proactive and say uh, some of the top questions that patients have when I give them this news are A, B, and C. So try to give them the basics. But we also need to take the lead if our patient does not ask and say, we need a follow-up appointment because let's see how, you know, I want you to go home and process this. I want you to write down a list of your questions and let's check back in in one to two weeks because then we'll be able to talk about this from a less uh, emotionally reactive standpoint um, and really go through what, what does this bring up for you? Okay. Thank you. Uh, so as we speak about communication, because I kind of nudge this in that direction, uh, I would be curious to know, uh, given my intention with wanting to in- integrate the communication skills necessary to talk about sexual health, SCIs, sex in general, into STD prevention, uh, I'm curious to know, would that even be something that from the provider perspective uh, that you would see as being useful? Um, and what I mean by that is maybe if patients understand, have a better foundation for talking about sex or if providers are more confident and have a better foundation for talking about sex and sexual health. Uh, is there something that you see there that can 
support us in minimizing new STI cases or is there something that you see out of that? Oh yes, absolutely. So there needs to be uh, self-education on both sides of the coin. So patients need to learn to educate themselves on anything that they're dealing with medically and providers, we need to educate ourselves on our care for our patients because the truth is that medical school, nurse practitioner school, nursing school, they're not cutting it when it comes to sexual health. We are just simply not provided with enough education around sexual health. And so then we need to go out and put it on ourselves to seek that education um, so we can better care for our clients. Uh, no matter what field we're in, because the fact is that sexual health is part of whole person health. Um, you know, as a cardiologist, there are still reasons why you're going to be talking about sexual health. As an orthopedist, there are still reasons why you could be talking about sex. Uh, any specialty, really, there is crossover. And so we need to take that education on as providers um, that we can better care for our clients. And then we can come together and have better conversations around it. Um, when we're used to talking about sexual health topics, we are more comfortable, which will show with our patient. Our patient will be able to pick up on that we are more receptive for hearing about sex, and we will bring it up in conversation. And hopefully that leads to them feeling more comfortable speaking about it. And I think we also, as providers, need to not assume that somebody else is going to talk to the patient about it. Because sometimes we pass the buck, right? Somebody else will talk to them. But the truth is, we're the ones. Take it upon yourself to talk about it. So. One thing that came up uh, in another interview was that there's the issue of, let's say, a male doctor talking to a female doctor and saying, how's your sex life? And that being completely taken out of context, but genuinely, I have to ask this just to, it's an open-ended question, and it allows for you to share with me what you want to share, but there's that fear of it being taken wrong and then potentially being sued or having some sort of legal action being taken, when the reality is this doctor's just doing his job or this nurse is doing their job, right? Um, so... One thing, I guess, one thing I'm curious about is how can we address that kind of thing? Is this more of a, the patient needs to understand that these are the kinds of questions that might get asked, or is it on the provider to screen better? Like, do they just put this on a checklist or something and have the patient fill it out rather than asking the question and potentially making the patient uncomfortable? Like, what can we do there? Um, multiple things. One is context, right? So having these conversations in a way, uh, a setting where the patient can feel the most comfortable. So these are questions that should be asked when a patient is fully clothed. I should not be coming in to do an annual exam and I'm going to be doing a breast exam while talking to you about our, how's your sex life, right? I'm, I've got my pap smear brush out and I've got the speculum in your vagina and I'm asking you about orgasm. Really, these should happen while we're, what we're doing is called history taking. So when we go in to first talk to a client, uh, they should be fully clothed. 
that is the time for having those sensitive questions because that's when we're going to feel most comfortable sharing versus when we are vulnerable on our backs, clothing off, an exam taking place, we're not going to get the best uh, information and responses. Plus, we could be making our clients feel very uncomfortable. So context. Okay. Let's ask these questions at an appropriate time. Um, the other is the way in which we ask them. And this is a skill that is uh, needs to be practiced. And I don't feel like we always have good opportunities to practice, but let's practice with our friends. Let's practice with our family. Let's practice with anybody, right? Because these are normal conversations that need to take place. So we should preface by saying, I ask every single one of my patients how their sex life is. Are they satisfied with the sex that they are having, with the intimacy that they have with their partner? Do they have any concern about their sexual functioning? Um, and so by setting it up, by saying, I ask everybody, that is normalizing it. And it should be something that we do. Um, and so you could also say, a lot of patients that I see have concerns about sexual functioning. Or a lot of patients that I see um, have concerns about sexually transmitted infections. Or I ask every single one of my patients, would you like to be tested for STIs? So having those uh, those ways of addressing it with patients. You brought up, uh, ooh, whoa, feedback. Uh, you brought up a very interesting point about the practice. Uh, the practice taking sexual history is uh, something that I'm actively working on to be able to offer to people who are already in the field, uh, being able to just revisit taking a sexual history and potentially delivering a diagnosis and coming up with these scenarios where uh, you have to talk about sex with someone who may be enthusiastic about talking about sex or who might be more reserved to talking about sex, but getting into the practice of bringing it up. Uh, I work with medical students uh, as a standardized patient and our scenarios, I haven't had like a sex scenario yet at all. And so there's clearly something missing here. I don't know if this would be something that is useful to schools necessarily, uh, considering how much needs to be done and like, or if it's something that needs to be in place in the real world uh, experience that's out there. So I'm working through uh, trying to create something that speaks to the need for communication i guess that the more i talk about it the more fluid it becomes but um i'm able to speak to um wanting to do that like give providers practice taking a sexual history and so taking these conversations that i'm having and understanding the communication component uh being able to meet patients where patients are and providers where providers are and bring this experience back in a way that allows for patients to be more self-educated and informed patients and allow for providers to have more confidence when engaging with patients especially around something so um, difficult to navigate such as conversations around sex sexual health and sexuality yes absolutely um, i think it needs to be approached from both directions uh, what I'm finding as a practitioner is that uh, social media uh, and the more open communication about uh, 
gender identity, sexuality, intimacy, uh, all these subjects are helping our patients come in and speak more openly about it. That sometimes they come in and they say, I saw a social media posting about uh, anorgasmia, which is not having had an orgasm ever. And it made me think, and then they share that with a practitioner and that's an opening. That's opening the door to say, this is something I'm concerned about. Can we talk about it? And there's a lot of folks on social media who are giving uh, each other tools on how to address their concerns, their sexual health concerns with providers. Uh, and so I love the fact that it's opening those doors and creating those conversations in a way that hasn't 10 years ago, 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. And so if patients are using social media in this way, is there a benefit to providers utilizing social media in a way to help uh with the communication or something that is a weird that was such a weird question i don't even know how you will answer that (laughs) yeah yeah so there's tons of practitioners who are on social media and we all have varying levels of comfort in engaging in social media and and how much time we have available in order to do that but we are um, trying to put out more educational pieces through social media because that's how our patients are getting their uh, healthcare education is sadly as practitioners, we're a small top of the iceberg in providing that information. The second they leave out of our doors in the parking lot, they're Googling. The second they leave out of our doors, they're on Instagram searching uh, for what's going on. And so we need to make sure that there are reliable voices that they are hearing because the downside of everybody having a voice through social media is that not everybody is conveying accurate information. And we really want our clients to have accurate information. You know, people who have diagnosis speaking of their own lived experience, that is absolutely valid. But know that your lived experience is not going to be the experience of everybody else. Uh, And know that it might not be the best reflection of what they're going through. And so we need to uh, make sure there's accuracy out there. Uh, So ISHWISH, which you mentioned uh, as how we originally saw each other, the International Society for the Study of Women's Sexual Health, Uh, are actively trying to put information out there that's accurate. So they have a website, uh, www.prosela.com, which is providing sexual health information. And we're building up our library of uh, articles and information for people to access. And as social media uh, practitioners, we're able to put their information, uh, we're able to put information uh that's educational out there too all right thank you for that. thank you for sharing can, when i start talking can you mute me or mute yourself okay all right i don't know what it, it's happened like three times oh nope it happened again did you mute me maybe it's me okay i think we're good I heard myself like roaring back at myself. <laughs> we'll hear it in the recording. Okay. Um, outsourcing bias was a note that I took. So uh, when we talk about having a 
not network, but you mentioned a team approach for the patient. Uh, if there is a provider that recognizes their bias when it comes to talking about um, poly having multiple partners, right? If this is someone who's married and lives more of a vanilla lifestyle and they have a client who wants to speak more about sex in a way that the provider isn't comfortable with, uh, I don't see this bias as being like a negative thing unless they're passing judgment onto the patient. But can recognizing our bias be useful to outsource um, services and care to perhaps someone who is more kink aware, non-monogamy uh, friendly? Uh, is, is that seen as more of a useful thing or is this just perpetuating a problem? So as practitioners, we need to build our referral list for this very reason is I cannot be an expert in every single thing. And so I need to make sure that I'm aware of what my strengths are and what my biases are, and then also where maybe clients would not be the best fit for seeing me because I don't have that lived experience that they might be looking for. And so, um, for example, uh, I am a cisgendered individual. And so if I have a trans client who I feel like would be best suited by speaking to somebody else who is trans, it is important for me to build that referral list of other practitioners who that might be their strength. And that way I can do an appropriate referral. And for a patient, sometimes that's frustrating to know um, that you have to then seek out care somewhere else and feel like you're reestablishing um, care. But know that when it's done for that reason, the goal is to better suit the patient's needs. The goal is to take the best care possible. And I think the practitioner should say why they're making that referral, right? So that should be part of, I would like you to see this patient, this um, practitioner because I think that their strengths are better suited to take care of what your needs are. And then you can leave it to the patient to say, yes, I agree, or maybe no, I don't, and I wanna remain in your care. Uh, it should be a collaboration, a two-way street. Okay. And what I heard there didn't necessarily sound like bias. It's something different. It's an awareness of what your identity is and then understanding that, okay, you know, I don't have the lived experience that you may have to where I would be able to potentially best offer you the quality of care that you need. And I understand initiating a conversation for maybe offering that referral however where's the line between you know uh oh you know i'm not trans but i know someone who's trans to oh i'm not a man but i know someone who's a man oh i'm not black but i know someone who's black and we can just kind of like continue to go down that list what you're describing doesn't sound to me like bias it's just more of an 
awareness of identity because like if i go see a doctor and let's say you're my doctor and you're treating me for maybe some sexual dysfunction and we're talking about those kinds of things there might be things that yeah you won't relate as a black man but your knowledge and awareness around sexual dysfunction would be more important to me than me seeing someone who looks like me who has expertise in the field but maybe just not that same quality given the rapport that we have built and that was something that you mentioned uh, having to get reestablished with a new provider I'm, I'm looking for what that word is and I guess like balancing out you know who you can help versus who you know you can't help or if it's a uh, if, if it's just a matter of I cannot help you or I cannot help you as well as this person. How do we differentiate between those two? Um, so sometimes there are times where I just cannot help as a practitioner. And for me, that's called scope of practice. Uh, so there are certain things that I cannot do as a nurse practitioner, such as be a surgeon. I am not a trained surgeon. So if somebody comes to me and they need fibroids removed from their uterus. I can support them in getting that diagnosis. I can uh, be an assistant of providing education and telling them what their care might look like, but I can't be the one performing the surgery. So I have to refer out for the, that client. Um, I think one of the things you might be touching on, but we're, we're talking around is that when there's bias, but it's unspoken, because I think our, our patients sometimes can recognize when the provider is biased, but they're not saying that outright. Um, so that can happen at, on lots of different levels, right? So if a client expresses issues uh, having to do with non-monogamy and the practitioner makes face, the practitioner says, I don't understand why you would do that or or is just saying anything disparaging about what's going on, um, they're not saying outright necessarily that they're biased, but they're telling you in so many words that they are. And so in that instance, it might be that the, the patient needs to recognize that they feel uncomfortable and that they might be better suited receiving care from somewhere else. All right, thank you, scope right. of practice. Uh, now, my next question to you is, the way we're talking about bias here is in a way that I've never heard. I've always considered bias to be a bad thing, whereas it just seems to be an awareness of something that you most people just aren't aware of contributing to how they communicate to people. So becoming aware of your bias in itself is an action step to being able to alleviate it. But it doesn't mean that your bias is a bad thing. Is that accurate or am I, what am I doing here? Am I... <laughs> um, no, I, I think that everybody has bias, right? And to say that we've done all the work and we are completely free of bias, that will never happen. Uh, it's just part of the fact that we each come from a unique background and the way that we are raised socially, culturally, um, you know, biologically, all these things occur. Um, and so us putting in work to process that bias and trying to be as aware of it as we can be is an ongoing process. 
it never, that work never ends. And yes, I do think that if we are addressing it, then maybe we are taking some of that negativity out of it. Uh, and therefore we can put it on the table and talk about it in a way that, um, that is helpful to everybody involved. Okay. Uh, so bias and stigma, I'm feeling drawn to bring these two words together and just see what comes out of the conversation here. Do you have anything to say about these two things together? Uh, yes, of course. So anything that is uh, potentially stigmatizing can create bias or people can have bias around. And there is still huge amount of stigma on anything that is sexually transmitted. And when we're talking about an upper respiratory infection and you're, maybe you got that upper respiratory infection because you're making out with your partner, we don't suddenly call that a sexually transmitted infection, but really it's just something we're passing between partners. Well, uh, STI is an extension of that. It doesn't mean that there's negativity behind it. You know, almost every point in time, people were not maliciously trying to give uh, STI to somebody else. It just happened. That's how it's transmitted. But because the word is STI, sexually transmitted infection, there is that stigma around it. And healthcare providers, we uh, carry that stigma when we're giving that information to a client as well. And our, our job is to try to reduce the stigma um, when we're delivering those diagnoses and as a first step to help our patient reduce the stigma that they might feel. Um, and this is not an instantaneous process, uh, reducing the stigma that we feel on any diagnosis, multiple sclerosis, um, pregnancy, right? Receiving the diagnosis, diagnosis of being pregnant. You know, these are all things that we need to come to terms with. Whether an STI is a short-term or temporary thing like chlamydia, uh, or whether the STI is long-term or permanent, uh, such as HSV. It's just a different way of, uh, of approaching it. You mentioned pregnancy as a diagnosis, and I kind of <laughs> giggled a little bit, but I mean, that's what it is. I, hey, I'm having issues. I don't know what they are. You're pregnant. Hey, I'm having issues. I don't know what they are. You have herpes. Hey, I'm having issues. I don't know what they are. You have an upper respiratory infection. Like the way that a healthcare provider delivers a diagnosis is essentially a touch point of stigma. Like that's the initial touch point of potential stigma. And given what we said earlier about stigma creating bias, I'm seeing that there can be a potential ongoing feedback loop of stigma feeding bias and bias feeding stigma. And it looks to me like the communication as well as self-awareness, like just awareness is something that we want to bring into the communication component in order to alleviate internalized stigma. People who have herpes, who receive a diagnosis, these people have their own ideas of stigma, which means that they have their own biases towards whatever the condition is that is stigmatized. And what I'm finding is that a lot of this stigma towards SCIs 
isn't even about the STI. It's about sex. Because I look at herpes, you know, if you have uh, oral herpes, and I, I use oral herpes or genital herpes instead of HSV1 or HSV2 because they're interchangeable. And I don't think anybody really cares except for when it's genital. And so the stigma creates this bias that even if I have oral herpes, I don't want genital herpes. I'm not going to be with someone who has genital herpes, God forbid, even though I'm partially responsible for passing herpes on to someone's genitals right and it's just such a wild cycle to think of but ultimately what this comes down to is awareness and communication are two of the things that keep coming to mind throughout our conversation i'm looking through here and uh, um, as we talk about a team approach, you know, having a team also means having accountability. And with that referral network and accountability, you have the same patient that may come to you, you know, as uh, for something general. And then you realize, oh, okay, here, I'm going to send you to this particular specialist. Specialist treats that, finds out there's something else that is beyond their scope. And then they may have you go see someone else. And it's not a matter of being burdened or feeling like, oh my God, this is such a burden. I have to see all these different people. It's, wow, I am supported by a community of healthcare professionals taking a team approach to my healthcare as a patient. So I'm going in and I have my overall health taken care of, my physical health taken care of, my sexual health taken care of, my mental health taken care of, and these, uh, the, the like my pleasure, as well being able to have someone to speak to about that and i think that one of the issues is that we as patients may go to the doctor and think okay I'm, I'm going to the doctor whatever this problem is is going to be fixed by this one person and we just have really high expectations for this particular person and i can imagine the pressure that that puts on whoever the first healthcare provider is that this patient might be seeing. So having a team, uh, a network of referrals, this is going to be what is helpful to you all and for us as patients to be more self-educated perhaps and seeking out a specialist as close to the realm of what we need treatment for as we can find on our own. So this is generally what notes I have from our conversation, Shana. Um, is there anything else that you want to add or is there anything that you would like to speak on uh, with the time that we have left? Yeah, I, I would say absolutely. You picked up on some really good themes and the ways that we can improve care by partnering together, practitioners and patients. Uh, the things that I would add is that visits can be overwhelming and sometimes we come into the visits with a lot of anxiety and a lot of um, fear possibly around medical care uh, just in general and so some tools that can help with that is to create a list of the questions or maybe a brief summary of what you need information on and this goes for just your general yearly exam with a practitioner, or it goes for a specialty visit, meaning you have a, a particular problem that you want to focus on. But create that list, bring a pen and paper, make sure that you're crossing them off, that you get those questions answered. Um, and then entertain bringing a support person 
or asking to dial uh, a friend or family member on the phone and have them on speakerphone or FaceTime during the visit. Sometimes that's required because of COVID reasons. Um, that having a second pair of ears is helpful because sometimes we lose our focus and we stop taking in information. And then ask for follow-up. Say, when is the next time that we are going to see each other? Or I need to touch base again. Can we do that in two weeks or in a month? Can I use a patient portal to email you if more questions come up afterwards? Are there books? Are there social media accounts? Are there websites that you could direct me to for supplemental information that is accurate uh, medically? So asking for those things. And it's difficult, you know, at first receiving a diagnosis can feel like uh, there's so much to take on. And I am asking us all to push ourselves to grow by learning to be advocates for ourselves. But it's important. It's important. And so that could then turn into a strength that comes out of a diagnosis is now I've learned to be uh, an advocate for myself. Thank you so much. Um, yeah, I am hoping that this information that I have uh, is able to be supportive in the creation of this goal of giving healthcare providers practice taking a sexual history, delivering diagnoses, um, as well as integrating some form of communication tool in the STD prevention, because I think that um, our conversation really does reinforce this thing that I feel compelled to do, taking something positive for positive people to whatever its next uh, evolution is going to be, which is just expanding beyond the herpes component and being able to get people more of the support that they might need when they're diagnosed, but uh, as also being able to cover the whole health of a person. And I really enjoy and appreciate this idea of a team approach. And again, the accountability that just comes with having a team, I think that we can acknowledge each other's bias as well like hey you know you sent me this patient you know they had a couple of things to say about some of the word choices that you used or some of the things that you might have said and this can help us with identifying things that we otherwise wouldn't have even known about ourselves so um I, yeah, I, this was great. This was really, really good. I thank you so much for being able to meet with me. It was nice meeting you. And I will absolutely stay in touch with you about what the next steps are with this recording. Um, and yeah, if uh, I don't know, do you want for people to be able to get in touch with you at all? If so, please uh, state how and um, what they can contact you for. Um, yes. So, Coming in the fall, I'll be providing sex medicine and sex counseling again. Um, so I'll be announcing soon on my Instagram where that location is going to be. Um, my Instagram is one whiskey tango foxtrot, all those words written out. Um, so that's my Instagram, how you can get a hold of me. Tango foxtrot. Wait a minute. This is a thing. Is it? O W T F. Oh, no, it's not a thing. I tried to make it a thing and it's not. So, well, it actually is. So, um, it's the number one whiskey tango foxtrot. Um, 
So Whiskey Tango Foxtrot is kind of the military expression for WTF, what the fuck, which for a sex medicine and counseling specialist I thought was um, tongue-in-cheek. Okay, I was looking for like a a word, but I I knew it was something there with the, okay, so one WTF basically. So it's the number one and then Whiskey Tango Foxtrot. All right, I got it, and I'll link to that in the episode's notes. Um, that's it. Thank you so much for being here. I, can I ask you a question, Courtney, actually? Yeah. Um, have you ever considered writing a book or, like, an online publication or anything like that? I'm actually in the process of it, yeah. Um, okay. From So I've interviewed a couple of my board members to speak specifically on herpes and I actually I just found out yesterday during a recording that um, one of the episodes that I thought I uploaded from a guest was actually one of those book chapters <laughs> in the audio form so what I'm doing is I interviewed a couple of people about a topic specifically got it transcribed and I'm going through and editing that now um, but yeah I am in the process of doing that that's so great because uh, we don't have enough good resources. So as I said, you know, when I deliver the news of a diagnosis of HSV2 to a client, I do the best that I can in the time I'm allotted to convey the most important information. And then I set a follow-up to speak with them again. But I would love to give them better resources for books. You know, now I've got your podcast Sometimes, um, so with podcasts, the only thing that I find is challenging is that you've got to kind of comb through to find out what applies to where you're at. And for example, you've got like 300 episodes right now. So having a book is able to then, you know, hit the highlights, right? It doesn't need to be 300 page book, can be more uh, of the pertinent information, could just be online or not. Um, And I... Because there aren't, you know, CDC, Planned Parenthood, these are good resources, but I think having something that's more what we call like colloquial, like something that sounds like just two friends talking to each other about like how does this impact your life, um, while integrating in medically specific things, like how do I decrease viral shedding as much as possible? When's the most critical times for avoiding, you know, sex and intimate? So stuff like that. Um, and I think like, you would be the perfect person to, to write that. This is validating. (laughs) Thank you. No, you've done such great work. So, um, I I think you have so much to be proud of and I'm happy to have you as a resource to, you know, refer people to your podcast and to you in general. Thank you so much, Shana. Mm -hmm. All right. That concludes this episode of something positive for positive people. Please like rate review, share, subscribe to, and donate to something positive for positive people. You can visit the website www.spfpp.org to find out more if there is more that you want to do or contribute. And again, our efforts at this point, um, we're no longer offering therapy. I do have referrals for that. If you are someone who's seeking out a therapist um, in relation to your herpes diagnosis, please reach out still and I'll be able to just point you in the right direction. But uh, we're mainly focusing on what's useful to the people who are reaching out the podcast the ongoing advocacy and the 
integration of these communication skills and resources that people have learned after their diagnosis and getting those integrated in the STD prevention effort. So basically me bitching at the CDC on a regular basis about not doing like not working with me. All right. So till next time. Thank you.